Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. In mid-1934, a Hungarian nuclear physicist, Leo Szilard, filed a patent for one of the reactions he was studying, a nuclear chain reaction. Szilard filed the patent not to receive personal monetary gain, but to protect the idea from misuse. A refugee from the rising fascist threat in mainland Europe, he was concerned about the weaponisation of this idea. He unsuccessfully lobbied the British War Office to keep the patent secret, arguing that it contains information which could be used in the construction of explosive bodies many thousand times more powerful than ordinary bombs. Over the following decade, as the drums of war beat louder over Europe, Szilard worked to progress the field of nuclear physics, whilst warning those around him of the potential dangers these advances posed. In 1938, following the discovery of fission, Szilard led a push for both scientists and scientific journals to suppress publication of the new findings on the ground that they might be misused. Szilard's arguments were rejected by many physicists, particularly those in France, such as Jean-Frédéric Joliot, who viewed the move as a suppression of scientific autonomy, which could only aid Hitler and Mussolini in destroying another precious liberty in Europe. Ultimately, these new advances in nuclear physics were shared widely, and various powers, including the US and Germany, began nuclear weapons programs. We all know how this ends with the infamous attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, and with the deaths of up to 225,000 individuals, mostly whom were civilians. Whether Sillard was right to push against the publication of the new findings about nuclear physics, and what suppression of that information could have achieved, is debated. For philosophers of science and ethicists, the period poses a broader question about the nature of scientific freedom and scientific responsibility. What individual responsibility should scientists bear for the consequences of their research? What, if any, restrictions should there be on the freedom of scientists to choose their own research projects and publish their results? I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and welcome to The P-Value. In this episode, we shall look more closely at the ethics around what are dubbed dual-use dilemmas, when one in the same piece of research in science has the potential to be used for harm as well as for good. What, if any, obligation do scientists have to think about this problem? How should they respond to such dilemmas when they arise? In the case of nuclear weapons, international non-proliferation agreements restrict research, but nuclear technology is not the only place that dual-use dilemmas arise. An accidental discovery close to home illustrates the challenge well. Ever since the house mouse was introduced to Australia with European colonists in the 18th century, populations of the species have undergone cycles of boom and bust, with mouse plagues being a reasonably regular occurrence. In 2021, for example, increased rainfall across eastern Australia due to a La Nina event resulted in large crop loads and, as a knock-on effect, caused one of the worst mouse plagues in the nation's history. Not only did the mice threaten hundreds of millions of dollars of crops, 
but they were so bad that they were biting people in their beds, eating through the electrical systems of their homes, and threatening native species. Farmers and householders could do little in the face of a literal grey-brown tsunami across their land and into their houses. Unsurprisingly, therefore, a biological control solution for mice plagues is one of the holy grails of Australian agricultural research. In 2001, researchers at ANU and the CSIRO working on just this challenge struck a dual-use dilemma. They genetically modified a common and usually relatively benign mouse virus, mousepox, in an attempt to use it as a mouse contraceptive. Instead of inducing infertility in infected mice, however, the virus totally suppressed their immune response and killed them. Not only that, but the virus proved deadly even to some mice that had been vaccinated against mousepox and should have been protected. Effectively, the researchers had accidentally stumbled upon a gene that could be inserted into mousepox and make it both far more virulent and able to evade existing mousepox vaccinations. This alone was a huge finding. It was the first example of a virus overcoming vaccination in this way. But it raised the spectre of an even more worrying possibility. There was strong reason to believe that the gene would have a similar effect if inserted in another related disease human smallpox. The researchers were faced with a dilemma. This was a significant scientific finding, which on pure scientific grounds should be published. But publication seemed to carry with it the very real possibility of misuse with potentially catastrophic results. Smallpox is a highly contagious disease. It kills about 3 in 10 of those infected. Its eradication through vaccination and other measures is lauded as one of the great public health victories of the 20th century, the last natural occurring case being in the 1970s. There are, however, samples of the virus remaining in secure labs around the world, and it's not hard to imagine the use of a modified and vaccine-resistant smallpox virus being used as a weapon for bioterrorism. The Australian mousepox researchers knew as soon as they started seeing mice dying that they had created something scary. The results weren't totally unexpected. All work at the time of this type had to be approved by the Gene Manipulation Advisory Committee, and in their original application, the researchers indicated that there was a possibility that the virus could be highly immunosuppressive and result in lethal infection. While they noted this possibility, they thought it was highly unlikely. That it was highly unlikely became something of a moot point, however, once the research had taken place. Then the researchers were struggling with the question of whether to publish their findings or not. They discussed the issue with close contacts and even contacted the military, who, by the way, didn't respond. Eventually, they decided to submit the findings for publication. They figured that they weren't qualified to decide such an ethical question and also that there was already so much information out there that bioterrorists could use in this area that this particular finding wouldn't make a huge difference in of itself. The paper came out in the Journal of Virology in 2001. And through a combination of chance and timing, recall this is 2001, prior to September 11, the results ultimately ended up the focus of a New Scientist article with the provocative title, Killer Virus! An engineered mouse virus leaves us one step away from the ultimate bioweapon. 
Of course, the New Scientist article prompted a raft of discussions about the autonomy of scientific practice and scientific publishing. Indeed, one of the threads of the debate in the COVID-19 pandemic has concerned both the importance of studies into ways that the virus could change in the future to be more virulent and the ways in which we can balance the risks of such information being misused. So what do you think? Should the researchers have published their results? Were their actions ethical in your eyes? So all research has two distinct potential users. There's the original or intended users. These are the people who use the research for the purposes intended by the researcher. And then there are secondary users. These are the people who use the research for some purpose that wasn't envisaged or intended by the researcher. In the case of the dual-use dilemma, the original or intended usage of the research is beneficial, but there's some secondary usage that's harmful. Although in the cases discussed so far, mousepox and nuclear fission research, the dilemma has arisen in the context of whether or not to publish, we can also see how the dilemma could arise concerning the decision to undertake the research in the first place. For example, in the mousepox case, given that the researchers knew that there was a risk of creating a lethal version of the mousepox virus in advance, there is some sense in which they unknowingly already faced the dilemma prior even to doing the research. In subsequent discussions with ethicists, the researchers themselves noted that they had already been dealing with dual-use technology for some time without fully appreciating it, and that there were many external factors which fed into the focus on this particular study as a dual-use dilemma. Some even go as far as to argue that in the area of virology, dual-use research is so ubiquitous as to make discussions of the possibility of misuse almost pointless. Either we do the research, accepting the -the across-the-board risks, or we don't. But interrogating individual pieces of research for dual-use risk is, they say, simply a waste of time. Others point to the broader challenges beyond virology of dual-use dilemmas. All sorts of technology, from CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to AI to drone technology, appear to pose dual-use dilemmas. And this raises the question of who should decide what scientists can and can't do in research and whether they should share what they find. Can you think of any other possible sources of dual-use dilemmas? For many, just as the French physicists of the 1930s, the spectre of government regulation of science raises questions about the right to intellectual inquiry and the role of free speech in the university context. There are several views about research freedom which relate to this. Some of these are broader, to do with intellectual freedom simpliciter. Others relate to the nature of science. For some, scientific autonomy is fundamental to science. There are various cases in history where the control of science by government has had a clear negative effect on scientific progress. For example, the role of Marxist ideology in the adoption of Lysenkoism by biologists in the Soviet Union in the 20th century. These sorts of cases drive some to see scientific autonomy as being fundamental to science and scientific progress. Many of these arguments rest on something like a a pessimistic meta-induction and claims about the impact of limits upon scientific creativity, scientific creativity being seen as fundamental to scientific progress. (laughs) 
one might worry that they tend to rely on extreme examples to get off the ground in the first place. Government regulation need not take the oppressive form it did in the Soviet Union during the 20th century. Indeed, as we've seen over the past two podcasts, in biomedicine at least, researchers are very familiar with government regulation of research. Through various ethics and review boards for things such as recombinant DNA research and the use of animals and humans as subjects. If we reflect on our earlier discussion, in many ways the mousepox case is an example of how these bodies are seen to be a way to manage the responsibility of the researcher. There is government mandated institutional oversight of biomedical research, which does shape research agendas in some ways. But it also frees researchers by taking on a lot of the responsibility for the societal impact of research. It's a way for researchers to get social license. Given this, perhaps the solution to the dual-use dilemmas being raised for other areas where technology is opening up huge new avenues for research, such as in artificial intelligence, is simply to have more boards and ethical bodies. In Australia, whilst there's a government-endorsed list of voluntary principles for safe, secure and reliable artificial intelligence research, there's actually no specific regulations of this technology, akin to what we see for research on humans or animal subjects. Perhaps there should be. What do you think? Should there be more regulation of research into new technology? What would the costs and benefits of regulation be? Are they worth it? Does this solve the dual-use dilemma problem? You've been listening to the P-Value Podcast. I'm your host, Dr Rachel Brown. Thank you for listening. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Fossey of the Sciences at the Australian National University.